Welcome to the Critique Journal Club wrap-up for July 2013. I'm Neil Orford, and this podcast is where we go through the last month's critical care literature. So let's kick off with the sodium bicarbonate infusion to reduce cardiac surgery-associated acute kidney injury, a phase two multi-centre double-blind RCT conducted by members of the Australian critical care community and published in Critical Care Medicine. This Phase 2B multi-centre trial reports on perioperative alkalinisation of blood and urine using IV sodium bicarbonate compared to standard care, which is IV saline, to prevent acute kidney injury in cardiac surgery patients who have an increased risk of acute kidney injury. So in 417 patients, they found that the treatment was effectively delivered in that there was a difference in blood and urinary biochem within six hours, lasting for greater than 24 hours, but there was no difference in acute kidney injury incidence at any level of classification between the two groups. So with that result, it looks like it'll be pretty hard to justify ongoing investigation into this area. The next study we're going to look at, also published in Critical Care Medicine by Lewis, Veal and Broglio, is an adaptive phase two dose-finding clinical trial design to evaluate L-carnitine in the treatment of septic shock. Now, the reason this paper is included is partially because it's interesting to look at L-carnitine as a novel agent in septic shock, but more so because it uses an adaptive design and it discusses adaptive trial design. And as such, it is a good educational resource if you're trying to get your head around this. In adaptive design, key trial characteristics evolve during the course of the trial according to predefined rules. Examples include preferential randomization to treatment arms with favourable outcomes or to doses with more favourable outcomes. This means a trial can commence with a large range of doses and relatively quickly narrow the range as subjects are not allocated to non-promising doses as the trial evolves. The benefit of this is through reduced inefficiency by not allocating patients equally to all doses. So in this study, they propose enrolling 40 patients to each dose initially, then reallocating the proportions of randomization following regular, in this case eight-weekly, interim analyses. In addition, there are stopping rules for futility and benefit established prior to commencement, and the trial continues until these are met. So if you're interested in learning more about this, this is a trial worth looking at. The next study, also in critical care medicine, is the influence of pre-hospital systemic corticosteroid use on development of acute respiratory distress syndrome and hospital outcomes. Now, this study examines whether or not pre-hospital systemic corticosteroids alter the development and outcome of patients with ARDS. The design was a pre-planned retrospective subgroup analysis of the prospective US critical illness and injury trials group lung injury prediction score validation study. In 354 patients with ARDS who were on systemic corticosteroids prior to hospital, they were propensity-matched 
to 1,093 ARDS patients who weren't on pre-hospital corticosteroids. And what they found was that pre-hospital corticosteroid intake neither reduced the prevalence of ARDS nor significantly altered the need for mechanical ventilation or mortality. So in conclusion, pre-hospital use of systemic corticosteroids neither decreased the development of ARDS among patients hospitalised with at least one risk factor, nor affected the need for mechanical ventilation or hospital mortality. Again, in critical care medicine, a study VA ECMO support for refractory cardiovascular dysfunction during severe bacterial septic shock by Brichot, Lloyd, Schmidt et al., this retrospective study presents detailed information, including follow-up data, about the role of VA ECMO in 14 patients with refractory septic shock and myocardial depression, defined as a LVEF of less than 25% or a cardiac index of less than 2.2. So in this group, they report that in 79% of cases, the underlying disease was pneumonia, the mean time to ECMO initiation was 24 hours after shock onset. There were two deaths on ECMO, two deaths in ICU, and 10 hospital survivors, all of whom were alive at 10 months post-ICU discharge. There was one leg amputation as a complication, and there was rapid recovery of myocardial function in this group who were proven to have myocardial dysfunction. In five, they had their VA switched to VV after resolution of circulatory failure because they had an ongoing need for respiratory support. There were long-term quality of life issues identified in the follow-up data, but no comparator. So the positive conclusion is that ECMO may have rescued more than 70% of patients, that is 10 or 14, with refractory septic shock and myocardial depression. Of course, if you're uh, not an ECMO zealot, you'll say that without a comparator and a retrospective study, it's hard to know what to make of this, but they are fairly good outcomes and it is an interesting hypothesis-generating study. Next, we have the Outcomeria study group who published Safety of Intrahospital Transport in Ventilated Critically Ill Patients, a multi-centre cohort study published in Critical Care Medicine. This study utilises the French Outcomeria database to assess the effect of intrahospital transfer in 6,242 ventilated patients by comparing them to matched controls and then to themselves on the day before transport. They excluded the operating room as a destination for intrahospital transfer and what they reported was that the reason for intrahospital transport was for medical imaging in greater than 99% of cases. Patients who have intrahospital transfer are at higher risk for various complications with an overall odds ratio of 1.9, and they included pneumothorax, atelectasis, VAP, hyperglycemia, hyperglycemia, and hypernitremia. Transfer was associated with longer ICU length of stay, but there was no difference in overall outcome. So it could be that these patients are different. That is, that patients who have intrahospital transfer or need medical imaging are a slightly different, more high-risk group than those that don't. And although the authors tried to account for all confounders, it, just, it may well be that they weren't able to. 
Or it could be that transferring the patient to medical imaging has some associated morbidity that prolongs length of stay and causes some ventilatory dysfunction and increases the risk of VAP. And I guess that raises the question, does imaging of ventilated patients add value to their care that makes the possible complications worthwhile? Again, hypothesis generating. In JAMA, we have a prospective double-blinded RCT, vasopressin, steroids and epinephrine and neurologically favourable survival after in-hospital cardiac arrest. This prospective double-blinded RCT compares vasopressin, corticosteroids and epinephrine to standard care, which was epinephrine alone, and looks at survival and neurological outcomes in patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest. So in three Greek tertiary care centres, 268 patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest received either one, what we'll call VSE, which is vasopressin, 20 units, epinephrine, 1 milligram, and these two agents were given every CPR cycle for the first five CPR cycles after randomization, and then they were also given 40 milligrams of methylpred on the first CPR cycle. So that's the VSE arm. The standard arm is epinephrine, one milligram per CPR cycle for the first five CPR cycles after randomization. Now, all patients received adrenaline as indicated after the first five cycles and stress dose hydrocortisone if ongoing shock was present. They report that the VSE group had a higher return of spontaneous circulation at 20 minutes, so the rates were 83.9% versus 65.9%, odds ratios of 2.98. A an associated shorter ALS duration, 13 versus 19 minutes, higher systolic, diastolic and mean arterial pressures post-arrest, and finally, they had better survival to hospital discharge with a CPC score of 1 or 2, which is 13.9% versus 5.1%, odds ratio 3.28. So that's very interesting. We have a reasonably large well-conducted prospective RCT suggesting adding vasopressin and steroids to the usual cycle of adrenaline in CPR in in-hospital cardiac arrest may be of benefit to our patients. Now, because there are effectively two additional interventions, which are steroids and vasopressin, and you could perhaps add a third and that they gave hydrocortisone post-arrest to all neurologic, uh, hemodynamically unstable patients, I'm sure that this will cause a lot of debate. In paediatric critical care medicine, there is a great supplement on extracorporeal life support. The Joint Statement on Mechanical Circulatory Support in Children, a consensus review from the Paediatric Intensive Care Society and Extracorporeal Life Support Organisation provides a series of excellent articles on paediatric mechanical circulatory support. If you're a paediatric intensivist interested in mechanical circulatory support or ECMO or a trainee, this is a great resource to read or browse. And finally, do windows or natural views affect outcomes or costs among patients in ICUs? This article in Critical Care Medicine by Rachel Conn, Michael Harhay et al., 
is a retrospective cohort study. It is large, greater than 6,000 patients, and it is unique in that it explores the effect of natural light on patient outcomes in ICU. Now, for those of us who work in ICUs where some rooms have natural light and some do not, or are designing new ICUs to work in, this is a question that I, for one, sometimes ponder. Does it matter if they have light or not in their room? So in this study, they characterised exposure to windows with natural view, industrial view, or no windows at all, and proportionally scored exposure of patients moved from one to another. They found that in the primary multivariate analysis, there was no difference in mortality, delirium, or readmission in window versus no window. In the secondary per protocol analysis, they showed that an increased medical ICU and hospital length of stay in windowed patients. And they showed no benefit of windows on clinical or economic outcomes. In patients with an ICU length of stay greater than 72 hours, windowed patients had a non-significant decrease in ICU and hospital mortality. So in summary, this study found no evidence that the presence of windows or natural views is associated with improved outcomes or reduced costs among diverse samples of critically ill patients in the short term. Now they note there are limitations, they note that the effects on families weren't measured and that the effects on staff weren't measured. Still interesting. Well, that's it for Journal Club, July 2013. Come to the website and have a look at the papers or go and have a look at them at the journals themselves. See you next time.